we just give every house and every seller a score. And the more things you have wrong with it, the higher the score, the more likely they're going to need to sell. All right, welcome to another interview at the Deals Today podcast, and I'm your host, Paul, at realestateaudios.com, and we're going to be interviewing a giant in the REI world. His name is Mike Hambright, the blogger, creator at flipner.com. Now, Mike's a serial entrepreneur. He's built many businesses within real estate. He's has that background of business building, of being a manager in the corporate world and building and scaling up businesses. So we're going to talk about that in this interview. He's flipped over 400 properties. He now holds a portfolio of over 800 rentals. So he definitely knows how to scale up to a a financial freedom number. And he helps hundreds of other investors through his mastermind find their financial freedom. So that is him. That is his expertise is business building. And I want to bring that into this interview And we're going to talk about a few other things. We're talking about the most common characteristics of successful investors. He lays that out for you. We're going to talk about how to build a highly responsive list, his story of how he got started and how he was actually forced to make real estate work for him with no job to back him and his family up, how to transition from a one-man show to a small team and the first person you should start hiring and how you should do it. All right, so of course, you can check him out at InvestorFuel.com. I highly recommend going over there. That's his mastermind. He's helped hundreds of investors. I have no affiliate to that. That's his straight website, InvestorFuel.com. And let's get to the interview. My wife and I started in the summer of 2008. So about, uh, you know, a little over 12, about 12 years, I guess. And uh, for the first couple of years, all we did was real estate investing. I had a job that I loved. You know, I, I kind of played the traditional game of, I really was the first person in my family to go to college. So I just kind of found my way there. But, um, and I was one that didn't. So anyway, ended up finding a, a, a really cool job. It ended up being like, like, I can't imagine a better job. I was kind of the apprentice for a, a at the time, a president who became the CEO of like a $5 billion company. Wow. And so it was just amazing, you know, flying around in private jets and having, you know, really cool meeting, meetings and dinner meetings and with like some of the biggest CEOs that the world's known, you know, really cool stuff. Uh, but that company ultimately is gone, literally is gone now. And when I worked there, when I worked with this guy, I was kind of a made man. I could do anything I wanted inside wow. of this company. I thought I was in my entire career there. And then kind of out of nowhere, one day he got caught up in some political, you know, mm. corporate political BS and he ended up getting fired. And then I was like, I had no protection at that point. I was his guy, you know, so I was kind of next. But it was just a big slap in the face. Like I went from probably being a little egocentric that I'm like, hey, I'm untouchable and I can do whatever I want in this company. Not not that I said that, but it was just comforting knowing like whatever I want to do, I can just go ask. And if it's aligned with his goals, like he'll he'll say yes, you know. And then literally next thing I know, some HR guy is wheeling a box of my crap to my car, (laughs) like taking my badge. And it was just like this huge slap in the face with ego, you know, really didn't know how to think about that. It just kind of just took a while to figure out. So then it took a little while to find another job. I ended up getting a, another really cool job, but we had to move. We live in da- the Dallas area now. And and so I went to run a division of the company that was flying high, but it was kind of the, it was the tail compared to the whole dog. And so the rest of the company wasn't doing well. I mean, it was, let's say it was a startup making a, a lot of, you know, had, revenue wise, had a lot of revenue wasn't that profitable, wasn't profitable really at all and had a couple bad things happen. And next thing you know, they're filing for bankruptcy. Mm. And so it's like, and we've been there for 18 months. 
And the truth is, is when we moved to D.C., my wife looked for a job for a little bit, but then we ended up getting pregnant with our first son, which our only son. He's about to turn 13, actually, here. And at, at the time, though, so she just didn't get a job. She just, you know, supported us and she was pregnant and everything. So but my son was like two months old when I left that company and I left. I could have stuck around, but they filed for bankruptcy. The writing was kind of on the wall. Like the best part of this is over, you know. So I just remember it's like. You know, I didn't get fired the second time I left on my own, but it was still this like feeling of defeat, right? Like, and it's like, this is the second time now in like a two year period. And we have a baby at home. Like we don't know how to be parents. And my son, like I said, my son's about to turn 13. We still don't know how to be parents, but when we were two months old, we had no idea. Right. And we had no family in Washington, DC. We had actually kept our house in the Dallas area and rented it out. So we could, we were just kind of waiting out the tenants to move back. But it was this time period of like, and it was 2008 too. So the market was a little soft, you know? And so, uh, and the real estate market was starting to trend down. Although in hindsight, we didn't, we thought we were smart, but we didn't time the market. We just, it was just ended up being a great time to get in. But I was faced with this decision of like, gosh, I'm up. I'm fairly newly married. We've been married for maybe three years at that point. And I've been beat up a little bit by going to these jobs. And I've always been a hard worker. I kind of, I kind of go all in on anything I do. And I have nothing to show for it, you know, and now I'm a father and we have to worry about things like insurance and all these things. Like I'd never had to worry about these things before. It was just this kind of moment of like, you know, shit just got real. And so I was kind of faced with a decision. We're going to move back to Dallas, but what are we going to do? Are we going to go back and get jobs again? Am I going to like continue to play this game? Cause I've kind of seen how it ends the last couple of times, you know, and I'd always been kind of entrepreneurial. I'd always been interested in real estate, oddly enough, even though I'd never done anything. And I didn't really have a lot of reason to have an interest in that. It's just even back then, there weren't really the house flipping shows. I don't think it really started at that point, but it just ended up being this time of like, hey, am I going to go all in on another company or am I going to bet on myself? And we just decided to kind of bet on ourselves. And that was the summer of 2008. So we ended up screwing around for a couple months, like looking on the MLS, talking to realtors that were always not helpful, just the type of people we were talking to, like, Hey, we want to look at a house. Well, sure. How about like in six days, we'll like schedule a time to look at it. And it's like, well, what are we supposed to do for six days? Like this is, we need to go do this now. You know? At this time you didn't have a job. You guys had to go all in right now and make it or break yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, we were all in. And I remember um, there was a time when we first started when I don't know if I wasn't taking it seriously. Like I, I wasn't, we weren't in a desperate position, but it's weird when you try when you're get, getting started in real estate, probably any business, but real estate investing, I'll say just because my experience, it's hard to go from not doing it at all to making it a full time job, unless you're doing busy work, like you're out driving for dollars or you're hustling. Or, but you can't like if you advertise and you put advertising out and you're like sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, like there's the, all these periods of like hurry up and wait, you know. Right. And I just remember feeling like, why isn't this going faster? How do I make this go faster? Like I would do work, probably like a lot of people that are getting started, I feel like I've done something, but I have nothing to show for it. Like, well, what am I going to do next? Like, how do I do that? And so I didn't really understand at that point the whole, like, basically the wholesale industry, right? I mean, mm. I understood real estate, but I didn't really understand, okay, I have to spend money on advertising to get leads to make my phone ring. It was just like I'm calling realtors and I'm, you know, looking at deals that at the time people were posting on Craigslist or kind of random things. I just didn't know of this real estate investing industry, you know, and I've kind of found even when I was in, it's like nobody knows that exists. But of course, there's an industry for like pink poodle lovers. You're just not right. when you're not a part of it. You just don't know it exists. Right. right. And back then there were virtually no podcasts. There wasn't a lot of information online at that point. It's very different now. 
But we ended up kind of talking to finding a couple people that mentor or people that I could be around that knew what they were doing. I have a mentor now still today that owns a couple thousand uh, doors um, in his portfolio and just kind of found my way there by getting around the right people and surrounding myself with the right people. And we were, you know, coming out of corporate America, one of the blessings was we were very good at putting together systems and processes and kind of corporatizing it, you know, which is probably something that I do better than most now, because when I've always taught people, I've always taught you want to build a business, not just there's some people that are like, let me show you how to do your first deal. And I'm like, well, I could show you how to do that. But then you're not going to know how to find the second deal unless I keep showing you like, I want to show you how to build a business, right? So anyway, long story short, we we kind of went all in. We kind of systematized what we did and really started to understand. I put money out for advertising. Leads come into my funnel. Most of them are going to be crap, but some of them are going to turn into deals. And you start to figure out like, okay, for every, you know, it's changed, of course, a ton. But at the time, if I put in $3,000, I'm going to get a deal out of it. So if I put in $15,000, I'm going to get five deals out of it and just kind of systematize our business to figure out how to put something in and get something out and rinse and repeat and do it over and over again. So in our first kind of calendar year, after we flailed for a few months, we ended up uh, doing 65 deals in Dallas and we were rehabbing, you know, probably 70% of them. So kind of doing it the hardest way, but uh, we just came out gunning and, you know, just ramped up really fast and we're operating at that level for several years. And then life starts to get more complicated or, it's easy for me to get shiny object syndrome and say, oh, we should be doing this or we should be doing that. And so, but, you know, a couple, within a couple of years, we're building up a rental portfolio. I started doing coaching and mentoring and kind of showing other people how to do it. And uh, over many years, the coaching became a sizable operation for me as well. And we were doing lots of JVs together with coaching students. And we literally, as of the time we're recording this, I, I just stopped my coaching program after 12 years of coaching uh-huh. and mentoring people newbies let's say i've officially stopped doing that and i love doing it it's just uh it's hard to scale because a lot of people want to talk to me and i brought in team members and stuff and i'm kind of the guy for that and and the truth is is i have my mastermind and we have an agency now the investor machine which we talked about earlier and so i've just found that i get the most joy out of working with experienced investors and i have a soft place for newbies too but it's just hard to scale that really emotionally, because I, I really want everybody to be successful. And a lot of people are not successful. That's why I'm prematurely gray here. You can tell I'm just like, <laughs> I've, I've, for a lot of people, I've wanted it for them more than they've wanted it for themselves. And that recipe doesn't work. And so, you know, right or wrong, I've chosen to go all in on experienced investors through our mastermind and through our agency, because it's, re- it's, it's way easier to take somebody from going 40 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour than from like zero to 20. Right, yeah. And, uh, I've chosen to just, you know, it's, and I'm at a point in my life where I don't have to work as hard anymore. And so it's like something had to give and that's what I decided to do. All those uh, people in your mastermind, what's one of the like couple characteristics of them that they all have that brought them to that point? So just to give it a little bit of context, so for Investor Fuel, we have two groups. We have what we call the Platinum Group, which is people that are doing 50 deals a year or more. And then we have the Gold Group, which is people that are doing 10 to 50. And there are uh, people, you know, every once in a while, somebody that's moving up to the next group, which is really awesome. I would say this is total commitment. And so it's in, this is where it's different than coaching, is that a lot of people that are in have come through the coaching programs. They're not committed they're not committed because they still have a job or they're not, they just want to put a toe in the water and see if this works. And, you know, most people that I know, I'm not saying you can't start part-time and be successful and then grow from there. But I found that 
most people don't realize how hard of a business it is. It's hard work. And a lot of people that are considering, you know, I still have a job, they end up having a hard time leaving that job or they're just like, it's just a little too comfortable. And so a lot of people that I know that have been successful, and I'm not you know, saying that anybody, anybody should just go all in on this, is, but people that were willing to like burn the boats and say, I'm doing this, like there's no, or they like lost the job or something bad happened that they kind of hit a wall at the bottom of the barrel, maybe in some instances, you know, and they're like, failure is not an option that I can accept. I have to go this way. And, you know, jobs are, even if you don't like it, it's consistent, it's reliable. It feels like it is at least until it's not. I mean, I, I, I felt that before too, and then it wasn't, but until you're hit with it, sometimes you're a little too comfortable. So most of these people all start off kind of the same. I'm trying to, uh, trying to visualize this myself because I'm in the same boat, work with W2. And yep. yeah, when I think about it, when you actually envision it, it's a hard obstacle to get over, just yep. stepping out of it. So, I, I mean, do some of these guys in the mastermind, do they deal with that? How do they deal with that? Leaving a job? Yeah, yeah. I don't think that there's anybody in our group that still has a job. Okay. It could be a spouse. So I would say for the most part, they're, they're committed. They're all in yeah. on this. And so another thing that I would say on what's a common characteristic is... They're more willing to take on risks, I guess, than the average person. But, you know, when one of the things that I feel and when you're outside of real estate, you don't you think what we do is risky. But when you're when you're doing it, you're like, I don't think it's risky at all. But there, it's like, uh, you know, it's measured risk. You know, it seems risky to the outside, but it's not it's not that bad. And the other thing I'd say is I think that a lot of the people this is a little bit of a misconception. A lot of people that are in our group are huge givers like they're. It's not uncommon for us to bring people into the mastermind. Of course, what you think is people want to come in, learn from their peers, be around other people like them. But it's pretty common for us to have people say when we interview them, because we, we don't allow just anybody in, to say, I want a group that I can come give to. I want to share my knowledge, and, which is really awesome because it's just this cycle of giving and sharing and taking it to another level that uh, is really cool to watch. Yeah. It, what's some of the, the struggles that these guys or girls uh, deal with? In your mastermind. So everybody's problems are kind of the same. It's just different shades of the same thing, I guess. So one common thing is, is we all want more leads. We all want to work less. We all want to make more money. And, and it's not, for most people, it's not about the money per se. It's just, that's a resource that allows you to use for impact or other things. So, so that's a common theme across the board, I would say. And then I think for, uh, you know, our gold group is people that want to be less involved in, at that point, a lot of people are still doing a lot of the work at the platinum level. Um, people are tend to be having more finding the right employees, finding the COO, finding. So it's always always people problems. Either they're the people that are in the way and they're doing a lot of it, or they're having a hard time finding the right people or retaining the right people, maybe to grow their business so they can be less involved. Going from a, a one man show to starting to get people in place, what's like some of the, the progressions that you kind of you kind of lead people through? Yeah. So like, who do you hire first? Type right. Thing. Yeah. 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 So it's usually, um, I'll say the, the most common two people that you hire first are an acquisitions manager, which is you know basically the salesperson that's meeting with sellers to make offers and an administrative person like, uh, called office manager coordinator. There's a lot of different names for that person, but an administrative role. So for the most part, you know, by and far, those are the first two roles that people fill, which one is first kind of depends on, that investor and what their skill set is and what it's not. So it's pretty common that a lot of the top 
salespeople are a lot of the top investors are good at sales. They like they like people. They like meeting with people. So they're good at that acquisitions role. So you could argue it two different ways. Some people say, well, if you're not good at it, you should get out of that role as fast as possible, which is true because it's hurting your business. If if you're the sales guy and you suck at sales, like you're hurting the business. But sometimes when people are really so sometimes when people are really good at it, they retain that until it's the last thing to fill, which is just a scale issue. It's like hey, I don't have enough time to go on enough appointments, which is kind of how I did it. When I brought somebody on the first time, I was still doing 50% of our appointments and they were doing 50%. And I had other things to do too. But And then over time, I just brought in a second person and I was out of acquisitions completely. But I was always there to like help close deals and kind of drag stuff over the goal line. How many deals do you think you'd have to do to get somebody like that in place first? So here's a little uh, rule of thumb to think about is you have to be doing enough volume to for that person to make a living from you does that make sense so sometimes people are because acquisitions managers are often a commission-based role or variable compensation so sometimes you might have a small salary or something to start but usually with salespeople, it's pay for performance and so if you're advertising enough so this all kind of comes back to advertising lead gen if you're only advertising enough to do enough deals to do say one deal a month and let's just say like a common uh, commission for a real estate, for a acquisitions uh, manager or a salesperson is about 15% of the gross profit. So let's just say on your average deal, you made 20 grand. So on average, they make three 3,000 bucks from that. And so if you're consistently doing one deal a month and they're making $3,000 and, uh, and I say consistently, which this business is consistently inconsistent, which is the truth. So sometimes you go like, you don't buy a deal at all in one month, the next month you buy three. And it averages out to one a month, but it's not like, hey, the 15th of every month we get a deal. Like It just doesn't work that way. So if you're only advertising enough or have a big enough operation to do one deal a month, are you going to find a killer salesperson that's totally committed to you for $36,000 a year? Probably not, right? So it's like, okay, well, I need to create a big enough opportunity for people on my team so I can pay people on my team. Otherwise, I can't grow. And so that is honestly one of the problems with a lot of real estate investors is they they think small, they act small, and they end up staying small because of that. And so now if you, if you say, I want to create a business, you know, what does a stair step look like? Because uh, I kind of stair step approach. You could do everything on your own and probably buy two or three deals a month, especially if you're wholesaling so that if you're rehabbing, things are harder, bookkeeping's harder, checking on projects is harder, raising money is harder. You have all those different layers. If you're just wholesaling, it's a little bit easier model. But, you know, I generally say you could probably do two to three deals a month on your own, but it is a job. It's not a business. If you're doing everything on your own, you're self-employed and your business is dependent upon you. You can't take vacations. Your kids are sick. Well, your business is suffering because your kids are sick. That's just not a good place to be in. But a lot of people start there, right? And so I could look at it as like a stair step to get to two to three deals a month. Once you get to two to three deals a month, you could probably hire an acquisitions person and an admin. If you want to get up to five to six deals a month, you probably need two of each right? Sometimes you can supplement things with a virtual assistant versus an in-house admin. So I think that the average acquisitions manager, again, depending on your model, depending on how committed they are, could probably do three to five deals a month for you. You could probably have somebody that does like five, six, seven, but if you have all your eggs in that one basket and they leave, then you're kind of screwed. So uh, my buddy, John Martinez says, if you have one acquisitions manager, you have none, which is basically just saying, you know, in this business, any small business, we can't afford a lot of redundancy. So the risk point is, is you, the owner, the CEO, chief bottle washer, whatever you want to call yourself, 
is whenever a light bulb's out or a toilet doesn't flush or something in your office or somebody quits or somebody's sick, like you often have to step in and um, you can't really get out of that situation until you scale your business. Otherwise, you're just going to constantly get pulled back in. Hey, real quick, I want to introduce you to my free daily newsletter where I give out free daily tips to real estate investing strategies, marketing, and sales techniques to keep you, the part-time investor, moving forward every day. So head on over to realestateaudios.com and you'll get a free report along with that free daily newsletter. Does everybody have to go through a pretty rough period of hiring an uh, AM acquisition manager? Is that a, a training process or usually you can find a sale, somebody who's a sales, natural sales rep? No, I think it's more effort. I think the average person, and I'm guilty of this, like early on hiring, like, oh, he sounds like he's pretty easy to talk to. He's got some experience selling this or that, siding or whatever. Yeah, I think he'll be good. I'll hire him. You know, it's like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. You kind of make bad decisions. Oh, okay. So we tend to hire people when we need them the most, you know. So I think, uh, you know, certainly over time, I've learned that you should take more time finding the right person, having them talk to other members on the team even personality profiles so you can see like what is the what does the data say and so there's a lot of ways to evaluate people now you should just be do i like this person right <laughs> yeah I, yeah i like what yeah. they said to me enough to say hey you're hired you know and the problem is is you know if you do it that way you surely have more turnover and make bad decisions just because you didn't evaluate them enough you know i think it's a little bit of an art and to find the right person and the truth is is the right person should be harder to find right so um yeah, I think uh, it's a little more work to find the right person. There's a lot of people that want to do it. There's a lot of people that want to be involved in real estate investing and they see a way to get in. But I think um, it has to be more than just like gut feel for right. sure. Do you think that these AMs end up leaving because they're kind of entrepreneurial themselves and they say, hey, I can do this business. All it takes is closing, closing deals. So they leave. I've probably worked with over the years, I've probably had eight or 10 different acquisitions managers. And I don't think there's a a single one that ever left because they figured out how to go do it themselves. And some of that could be back to who I hired. So I think it, at the end of the day, I think the, the average, so I had one guy that worked for a long time, did a lot of deals with me. I think he saw how big of a struggle the non sales part was. So he's like, man, I don't, I don't want to do that because <laughs> there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of crap that goes into it. There's a lot of risk. And I think a lot of people worry about that. Am I going to train my competition? Mm. Yeah. And a lot of people worry about that. I don't think that's as big of an issue as what most people think. And in my story, when I went back to the beginning, there was a, a time where I had more of a scarcity mentality. Like the first probably 18 months I was in this business, I like, I don't want to talk to anybody. Like, don't take my secret sauce. <laughs> There's not a lot of secret sauce in this business. And some of the secret sauce that is there is hard to replicate because it's, it's about dedication, commitment. So I think once I kind of realized that, hey, I can teach people this because as soon as you start to teach people things, what happens is they're like, Oh wow, that's awesome. Well, if I find a deal, can I come to you? Cause I don't have the money for it. It's like, yeah, like, if you find a good deal, like let's talk about it. And so it just creates more opportunities. Right. And so, so imagine this model, you have acquisitions people and you tell them up front, this is kind of an apprenticeship. Like I want you to work for me. Honestly, I want you to work for me forever. But if you ever feel like you want to go out on your own, and do this on your own, then let's talk about it and we'll find a way to work together. Maybe I'm providing funding or we find some way to JV on stuff. It's not a real estate investor's JV with people. I mean, you would much rather, I'd much rather JV with my coaching students or people that I've had some input in teaching them to think like me versus some, you know, the average random investor that, that honestly is overpaying for deals and doesn't really know what they do. I'm just like, no, nah, there's no way I could do that deal. Can you get the price down like 30 grand or whatever? 
you know, there's a model there to say, well, what if when I hire people to work for me, it's open from the beginning of like, here is the path. If you want that path, knowing that most people are not going to take it anyway, that I'll support you if you move on. And here's what that program looks like is like, we're partners. You could probably talk hours about business building and all that. I mean, that's what what your mastermind is designed for. But, uh, you know, the marketing part, this takes, I mean, I imagine I'm thinking about this. This takes quite a bit of um, volume coming in to start stacking the employees, you know, until you get to the CEO. So uh, in the marketing part, you got to fuel this machine. Have you been seeing people with this market today, um, the response minimizing leads are coming in a little slower? So I'll say on the resale side, for retail properties, the market is hot. I would say almost everywhere that I know of right now, the retail market is surprisingly hot. And the reason why is because there's very little inventory on the market. You know, as real estate investors, if you if you rehab a house and you go to resell it, we're always competing with owner occupants. And so it's different in every part of the country right now because of the COVID stuff, even though things are They've kind of come around quite a bit. But for the most part, I think the prime selling season is usually list your house in the in the kind of late spring, sell it and move during the summer. And I think a lot of people just skip that this year. They're just like, you know, I didn't get a chance to go look at houses. Like, let's just not move right now. Timing's weird. I don't want to wear a mask everywhere I go, or I don't want to have to, you know, our contractors couldn't come over and fix the things we needed to get fixed before we wanted to sell it. So I think it's just caused a slowdown of the retail market, which of like additional um, you know, inventory effectively, which is good for real estate investors. So it's, it's kept the prices high because there's low inventory. So people are pretty commonly these days um, are uh, getting deals above asking price still. And uh, it's because when a house hits the market, there's more demand and supply right now. And so what will happen a year from now when twice as many people are selling, well, it'll have some pressure on us the opposite way or even this fall. I mean, who knows when it'll, people will start to, act more normal again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But um, at the end of the day, the market is still pretty good on the retail side. Now on the wholesaling side, it's a little softer because um, credit is dried up. So credit is still pretty strong for buying homes for homeowners for a lot of hard money lenders. Some of them sat on the sidelines for a while to see what was going on. And so they've raised their prices or they're charging more points or they're charging more interest up front. And so that's driven, you know, some real estate investors out of the market or to the sidelines. And so there's good and bad with that. The bad is the people that would traditionally buy from me, let's say as wholesalers, are not buying right now in some instances, or at least to a lesser extent. The good side is, is when I do get leads, I have less competition for those deals. So there's a lot of things at play. The other side is that when sellers sell houses, there's always the psychology that they're watching in the media. Usually it's media driven of when they're saying the market is tanking right now, that people start to plant in their head and they're willing to accept less. When they think the market's on fire, they want more for their house. So despite all this stuff that's been going on in the media, for sure, there's very little conversation about how it's impacting real estate. So absent that knowledge that people get from watching the news or reading the newspapers, they assume the market is still strong or it's still good, or they still they still want to be able to sell their house for what, they could have sold it for a year ago, even if the cheese has moved, if you will. So it's a mixture of like pros and cons. Like this helps me, this hurts me, you know, as a real estate investor. And it really is any small business. So I would say that sellers are a little slower to make decisions these days because a lot of people are just, there's so much uncertainty. Like what does all this mean? How does this impact my job or my life or my retirement or, 
whatever I want to do, my family, our health, you know, all those things. Just so much uncertainty in the market right now that there's a guy that I follow in the marketing space, and he basically says, a confused mind says no. That's generally uh, yeah. Russell Brunson, by the way. Russell Brunson, yeah. It's yeah. like, that, that's true. Like, I, I don't know what I should do. I'm going to do nothing because I don't know what I should do. So the easiest thing to do is just not do anything. Yeah. Right now. yeah I think that came from Gary Halber. He said, the confusion is um, the death of a sale. Well, I mean, yeah. but he probably was probably quoting Gary Halber. Same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah same yeah. thing. Yeah. I've got a Gary Halber book. Oh, awesome. I was I, digging through a box uh, looking for something the other day, and I came across a book. I was like, oh, my God, I... I'm looking for that. Have you read his uh, any of his newsletters or um, a long time? Yeah, that's why when I found that book, I was like, I need to pull this out and uh, yeah. look at this for a while. I'm going through right now. Um, do you know who Ken McCarthy is? Uh, I'm not sure. He's like so. he's considered like uh, he's considered the father of internet marketing. Like he's still around. He's okay. one, he's one of the first to commercialize internet marketing to teach it. Okay. I'm going through his copywriting course. I don't have it with me right now. I'm looking around for it, but I highly recommend it. Ken McCarthy. So going back to the conversation, what do you think is going to happen with real estate going forward? So first off, there's always opportunity. And this is why I talking about where I spend my time at these days, why I prefer working with experienced investors, because they know proverbially somebody has moved my cheese, but the cheese is still there. Right. The opportunity is, is not going away. There's always we tend to buy houses from people in distressed situations or that have gone through some sort of uh, life change, death, divorce, inheritance, problem, rental properties, things like that. None of those things are going away. They don't follow any sort of other trend with COVID or the economy or anything like that. And so those things aren't going away, right? And so there'll always be opportunities to help people that are in a difficult situation sell their house quickly and or sell their car quickly, sell their jewelry quickly, sell whatever they want to sell, buy or sell. There's always a market um, for that. And so that's, you know, as long as there's people and houses like there's always going to be opportunity. I don't think that's going away. It's just changing, right? It's like, how does, and I think what happens is, and I know people from, haven't been around for a while now. I know people that used to be rock stars and they just disappear. And some of it is that they just couldn't shift with a market shift mm-hmm. or, or they just decided to call it quits, whatever it might be. But uh, no, I don't think the, the industry's not going anywhere. It's just a matter of, it just goes through ebbs and flows of, you know, how big the opportunity is or how you have to go about generating those leads or, if you're doing, you know, creative financial offers like sub twos and seller finance deals and stuff versus just cash offers. And so I think, again, that the cheese just moves for us. Now, going to the marketing side for motivated sellers, is there anything you've seen change throughout the years, the, the ebb and flow, the shifts that you have to make? What are some of those things that you've seen or has everything been pretty much consistent as far as having the same list, marketing in the same way? No, I think marketing has changed quite a bit. I, and here's, here's what's changed is it's just – some people have gotten more sophisticated. So at the end of the day, when it gets more competitive, one of the things that happens is the amount you have to spend on advertising or lead generation gets more expensive, right? So if you don't change with the market and you're doing something outdated, then you're going to bear the brunt of that cost-wise, right? So um, a lot of things have changed. I think people, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons we created our agency, The Investor Machine, is because we know that if using better data, we mm. can lower the cost of marketing and reduce who people are marketing to. So at the end of the day, what everybody, what we wish existed was this list that got printed out. That's like, you know, here's the list. This is like all the people that are super distressed and they're going to sell in the next week, but that list doesn't exist. So it's like, okay, well, how do I try to create that? It's like, well, through data. So do they have tax problems? Like how many problems do they have? So we're doing effectively what we call list stacking. So like how many lists are they on? 
And there's a bunch of well-known ones, probate, recent divorce, are they on a pre-foreclosure list? Or is their house going up for foreclosure? You know, mowing liens, tax liens, IRS liens, mechanics liens. There are dozens and dozens of factors. If you can find that information, the problem is, is there's no one place to go get that information. It's every county and every city records things differently all across the country. There are a couple lists that are easier to get to than others, but most of them are really hard and they take a lot of effort. And so if you can get all that information, though, and stack it up and say, wow, this this person has like everything wrong, like the spouse died, they haven't paid the taxes in three years, not one year, three years, you know, all these different data points that start to say this person is the most distressed in the market. And you can sort that from top to bottom, which is kind of what we do in our agency. And so if you get that data, you have that data, you have a little bit of an unfair advantage because the average real estate investor is not willing to put the effort to go find that information. Yeah, 100% agree, man. I think that's what it, it, Gary Halbert talks about the list being you know, 40% of the effort when it comes to marketing, right? So, yeah. so then how big, how many stacks, I guess? I mean, you're going to, this takes, if you're going to be hiring somebody, to, you got to have a system for doing this. You have to have a system, an operation manual to do this, right? And so you have to kind of cut it somewhere like, okay, we're going to be stacking these three lists together. Is that is there like a certain system you have a certain certain rules three to four to four lists that you put together? So again, we try to pull about forty different lists oh, at the market wow. level. So a lot wow. of stuff. Now, if you have two, that's better than one. If you have five, that's better than two, right? So the more data you have, the better. But yeah, I mean, for a long time, you know, people that understand this have tried to do it in Excel, which is a pain in the butt. There's like Batch Lead Stacker, which is probably the best thing on the market right now to go do it yourself. And then we've developed some proprietary software and systems for how to get data and how to stack it up. And we, we do a little more than stacking. We score stuff based off of, like, if somebody's gone through probate, that house and the person tied to it is a higher value, let's say, than somebody that has one mowing lien, right? So right. it's like somebody died versus the city cut your lawn for you once, you know? So um, we give different things a score, and we remove stuff from the list. The problem is a lot of people that say, well, I have the list whatever that list is, they assume it's a static list where every list changes every day. Like there's people that come on, there's people that should go off. And, you know, because somebody got divorced 15 years ago, it doesn't mean that the house that those people owned 15 years ago is still in distress. Like that has a shelf life, right? That ends at some point. And so nobody knows the answer to those things, but you have to make decisions on assumptions and say, okay, well, if somebody goes through a divorce, we're going to say that house is going to be in some sort of distress situation for up to nine months. But if the house sells and changes hands, then we remove it from the list completely. Or we wait. If it doesn't change hands, we're going to market to it for nine months and give it a score of one point for that thing. Right. Okay. It's a little more. Yeah, it's a little more sophisticated than that. But in principle, we just give every house and every seller a score. And the more things you have wrong with it, the higher the score, the more likely they're going to need to sell. That makes sense. Wow. So at the end of the day, like I, I'll say this, when I first started in real estate investing, what I really wanted was passive income. And I kind of saw the truth is, is I, and I liked rehabbing. I liked the idea of it, even though I'd never rehabbed the house. When I first started, I actually had no idea what wholesaling, but I realized that that's an important component to generate cash faster, to pay the bills and stuff. Rehabbing was a way to take a deal that I could make 10 on and make 20 instead, even though it was harder. Right. So they kind of like feed each right. other. And for us, I was like, well, I can't spend money finding or foregoing income to keep rentals unless I wholesale and rehab. So it was like something I had to do to be able to 
I had to buy like four to keep one or whatever the right. ratio might be. Right. We never looked at it as a ratio, but if you have that income coming in every once in a while, you're like, you know what? We, I don't need that 20 grand from selling this one. I'm going to tuck it away for right now because someday I don't want to have to work this hard. Right. right. And so we built up a single family rental portfolio, which is, has a lot of equity. I mean, most of our wealth is in just appreciation and things that have happened from that. But when I've gotten to the point to where I have some other businesses, like I don't have to worry about covering the bills at home anymore. And fortunate in that regard. So it's like, okay, well, I, I love today money. Like I want a big stack of hundreds in my hand, like right now, or yeah, whatever the yeah. biggest bill you can find, put them in my hand right now. I want today money all the time. But if I have a choice, I would rather reinvest that in my future. And so more and more, we're trying to do bigger deals or other things that are more wealth building and will generate repeat income, like passive income over time, residual income. Yeah. Right. So that's where I'm focused more on now. And I think for me, it's personal freedom. And part of my freedom is the ability to impact others. Like I, right. I love having that ability. Like maybe I'm doing it from an RV halfway around the country right now. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not now, but you know, I want that freedom for myself, but that freedom gives me the time to impact and influence others. And so for me, it, those go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. Do you consider right now, do you consider yourself having that freedom? I do. I'll say this. I'm not saying this to brag. Financially, I do. I'll say like I'm a workaholic, so I've got a problem with. I don't know. It's hard for me to like not want to take it to the another to another level. So that's something that I that I struggle with. I mean, we worked hard to get here, and so sometimes you're like, someday I won't have to work so hard. But when I'm here, I do work hard. It's uh, mentally for sure. It's not. It's a labor of love too. It's like I'm trying to get somewhere here, and uh, whenever I sit still for. Even it's a three-day weekend, I'm like itching at something to do or some problem that I think needs to be solved, you know? Freedom to me is not, like retirement to me is not, now I can sit on the beach and do nothing. Like, you know, I like to sit on the beach. I like to golf, but if I if I was retired and I golfed every day, I, I would hate it. Like I don't, you know, I want, I have to have some variety there, but I think it's just having the ability to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. It's not the ability to do nothing, unless that's what you want. But that is for a lot of people that I think have, accomplish some level of success and like impacting others their goal really isn't to man i'm just gonna sit in that chair over there and do like, i might do that for an hour but then i'm like you know i gotta do i got something to do <laughs> right yeah 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 i know what you mean man all right mike i, I appreciate your time here man i really do it, awesome, awesome. Hey, thanks thanks so much for the opportunity i appreciate it all right, thank you man take care have a good one all right, that's a wrap, and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please go ahead and subscribe to it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever you use. It really helps me keep producing these. Just search for the Deals Today podcast in your podcast directory, podcast app. So if you're not on my daily email newsletter and you want to be and you want to receive the free 40 Days to Find a Deal seminar, Go ahead and go to realestateaudios.com slash flipping. Again, that's realestateaudios.com slash flipping. <music>